Welcome to the podcast edition of Dream Talk Radio. I'm your host, Anne Hill, and every week I explore topics related to dreams, sleep, health, culture, and consciousness. Dream Talk Radio airs every Thursday from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific Time on KOWS 107.3 FM in Occidental, California. And you can catch the live stream at www.kows.fm. Meanwhile, I hope you enjoy this edition of Dream Talk Radio. This is Anne Hill coming to you on a very socked-in, cloudy morning here in Occidental. Uh, that seems to be the theme of this summer, but it's been kind of interesting that way. It's actually not been o- overly cold, just and it's not been overly breezy, but it's been definitely gray. Interesting uh, tone of light we have been living under and with for the past couple months. Anyway, I have a great show today. It's a really interesting topic. Um, I have on the phone with me a good friend, uh, Stephen Herman, who is a Jungian psychotherapist in Oakland. Uh, He teaches internationally. He is an author and a poet, and author most recently of a book on the poet William Everson. It's called William Everson, The Shaman's Call. And this is a collection of interviews and commentaries on the poet and and, uh, really pivotal thinker William Everson. And I'm just so pleased to to have um, Stephen Herman on the phone. Welcome to Dream Talk Radio. Thank you. Uh, It's a pleasure to be uh, speaking with you this morning. Is it cloudy over in Montclair? It is, yes. It's foggy. Foggy. It's just a, you know, it's an interesting, we were were talking a little bit, and and we will be talking about Archetype West, which is a term that Everson coined. And it's interesting to me um, how much this quality of light, how different this quality of light is in the summer in California from sort of a normal, sunny uh, summer, and I think there's something there's there's something of the the poet's muse in the fog, in my opinion. So it seems like a a, a good time to be talking about um, the shaman poet. Yes, well, uh, it does bring uh, the archetype up uh, close in terms of uh, there being an archetype dreaming us. Yeah. Uh, you know, as your uh, radio show. Uh, seems to indicate with uh, dream talk radio. Right. Uh, it seems that you know talking out of the dream is is talking out of the the fog mm-hmm. or out of the out of the cloud in a way out of the unconscious. Yeah. Uh, so that's what uh, hopefully we'll be able to do today a little bit. Great. Well, perhaps you can give us a little background, uh, maybe uh, who William Everson is and how you. Uh, made his acquaintance, what that story is? Well, I would be happy to. William Everson uh, was one of the seminal poets and thinkers of the West uh, of California. Uh, He was a Dominican uh, lay brother, um, a monk uh, in the Dominican order for 18 years. Uh, After uh, emerging as the poet of the San Joaquin uh, in his earlier uh, life as William Everson, uh, during the order, he took the name Brother Antoninus and then uh, left the order in a symbolic uh, gesture of investiture. He disrobed himself of his uh, mantle as a monk, a Dominican monk, and uh, uh, fled, as he said, the platform uh, to marry his uh, young wife, Susanna, and uh, she had a young child at the time, uh, Jude. Uh, and uh, the book uh, that I want to speak a little bit about today, Archetype West, was written mm-hmm. at Stinson Beach. And uh, it was written uh, between February of 1970 and uh, February of 1971. Mm. And the reason this book is so important in... Uh, setting the uh, the background for the uh, the book that uh, Everson and I uh, co-authored together, uh, the Shaman's Call, yeah. uh, is that Archetype West was uh, being written right before the uh, course that he would teach at Santa Cruz, uh, UC Santa uh-huh. Cruz, uh-huh. Uh, Birth of a Poet, um, which he uh, taught in the fall of 1971. 
through 1980, uh, 1981, and I was his teaching assistant uh, in the years 1980 and 1981. So that's um, how I made Bill's acquaintance uh, first, um, as a student in his course and then as his teaching assistant. Um, The idea of the Western archetype is uh, actually a fascinating idea. And, uh, you know, Everson asks uh, certain questions in this book uh, that was not published until 1976, uh, basically, you know, what, is, what does it mean to be a Western writer? Yes. And uh, what is the archetype of the West that is dreaming us? Uh-huh. Uh, who are its literary uh, exponents uh, here in California? And what role has depth psychology, uh, primarily the psychology of C.G. Jung, uh, mm-hmm. played in helping to define it? You know, these are all questions that uh, Everson takes up in Archetype West. Uh, where he defines the Pacific Coast as a literary region using the idea of uh, Jung, namely the archetype. And he did this from uh, Stinson Beach, as I said, Mm -hmm. uh, between 1970 and 1971. Uh, The the same time he wrote uh, two important poems, uh, Black Hills, Mm -hmm. which was written in May of 1970, and um, uh, The Scout, which was written uh, in June of that same year, 1971, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. So this was right before the um, teaching of Birth of a Poet, uh, which he taught for 10 years at UC Santa Cruz from 1971 to 1981. Right. And um, in that course, um, Bill uh, took on or assumed uh, the, the mantle or the uh, persona of uh, a... Latter-day Shaman of a um, <clears throat> a, a Western literary figure wearing uh, the uh, regalia, the religious garb, as he called it, of a um, contemporary uh, poet uh, shaman. Mm-hmm. So this is the basic archetype that we uh, look at in the book, and uh, I trace the evolution uh, to uh, dreams, yes. uh, which gets back to uh, this this uh, program, uh, Dream Talk Radio, right. because when Bill Everson uh, speaks, he's basically talking out of, out of the dream. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the poem, uh, Black Hills, uh, he speaks of a dream that he had, and this was during the time of writing Archetype West. So I mm-hmm. see this dream as being uh, real pivotal in yeah. his discovery of uh, a, a new... Uh, spiritual uh, uh, mantle that he would wear after he disrobed himself of his friar's uh, uh, robe at UC Davis. So he was looking for a new identity, looking for a new um, orientation uh, as a poet. And uh, I have some intuitions about uh, who the forerunners uh, of this were. Uh, Bill mentions uh, Joaquin Miller. Yes as being the inception point for the uh, Western archetype. Uh, Joaquin Miller, who's uh, not uh, that uh, well-known uh, as, as a major California writer, uh, was important in Bill's uh, idea uh, because of who he was, what he represented. Um, he had insufficient verses, uh, and that's why he hasn't lasted in the American yeah. uh, consciousness. But his vision was uh, quite profound. He uh, spent a lot of time up in uh, the Shasta region, Mount Shasta. Wasn't and, he involved um, wrote, in the? He was involved in the Modoc Indian Wars, right? He that's, was. Yes. He he was involved in in the uh, the Modoc Indian War, as it uh, is stated in the novel. Actually, he was um, uh, aligned with the uh, Pitt River Indians, oh, okay. who are one of the four tribes of the Mount Shasta region. The book was rewritten uh, by uh, uh, the editor who published the book in, in London. In, uh, and so the, some of the content of the narrative changed. Mm. Uh, so whether he really represented the Modocs when he fought against the U.S. Cavalry or right. uh, the Pitt River Indians, um, that, that's a uh, historical uh, uh, question. Right. 
Well, you but know, the, the significance for Bill Everson is that uh, <clears throat> Miller uh, aligned himself with an indigenous Native American uh-huh. standpoint, uh, and and that represents the what he calls the inception of the. Uh, the West uh, Western archetype, uh, the uh-huh. archetype West, and this was so. Uh, so while Everson was writing Archetype West, nineteen seventy, nineteen seventy one, early nineteen seventy one. I mean, this is before, or maybe it's it's just around the same time as the whole bioregional consciousness came into being, and this idea of place based uh, mysticism and spirituality in sort of the Western consciousness. I find it really interesting that he was right in there kind of with the same stuff. And it seems like once he left the Dominican order, he really did turn to the earth, to nature, particularly, you know, calling himself a poet of the San Joaquin Valley, that there's there's this connection with place, this place-based poetics and aesthetics that uh, that just really comes through all of his writing. Yeah, that's that's exactly right, Anne. He he basically felt that, uh, uh, and this wasn't his idea alone. He got it from uh, Santayana and other mm-hmm. important writers. Of course, Emerson and Thoreau were living this out right. in their own experiments with language, as was Walt Whitman and Herman Melville uh, in the East. Uh, nevertheless, Everson felt that uh, their situation. Uh, his and the the California writers at the far end of the West was the term of the westward uh, migration, which placed the Western writer or California writer at the center rather than at the periphery of the American experience. Um, and pantheism, uh, which he viewed as uh, not only uh, the basic Californian or Western mm-hmm. point of view, was essentially American, he said. And this, of course, can be seen in Whitman. And it is indeed the characteristic religious and aesthetic feeling, he said, uh, of the uh, uh, West Coast writers. Um, Mm -hmm. And he said one other thing that I think is very important in this, Anne, and that's that uh, the Western writer, California writer, is more in line with the perspectives of the American Indian and hence closer to the roots of the land. Mm. So... That, uh, I think, explains his adoption of uh, Native American artifacts, a bear claw necklace, um, uh, quite impressive, beautiful artifact that he wore, and the buckskin vest that he wore in Birth of a Poet. He speaks about his going to a little shop in Mill Valley uh, while he was working on Archetype West and finding the uh, buckskin vest and then uh, deciding that he was going to wear that. so I think that um, uh, this, this was already something, as you say, Anne, that was in the air, yeah. you could say. It was in the collective psyche. And um, he actually uh, points to uh, Gary Snyder, who as yeah. perhaps uh, the, the uh, writer, the poet, who, who most uh, represented this as a kind of a key figure for that time mm-hmm. period you're, you're speaking about. Yeah. Um, well, there's a quote from uh, Archetype West uh, where he's talking about Gary Snyder. He says uh, uh, that uh, Snyder represented the terminal literary situation of the archetype uh, at the time of the book's publication. Mm-hmm. This is 1976. Uh, Robinson Jeffers, who was Everson's uh, master or mentor, yeah. um, he says, uh, had looked westward to the vast expanse of water and Jack Kerouac and Allen Ginsberg responded uh, to the sweet beyond. But more than any other American poet, Snyder has followed the craze uh, to its conclusion. <laughs> and here's a quote from Snyder that beautifully yeah. expresses what Everson uh, embodied. Uh, and that is, uh, as a poet, he says, I hold the most archaic values on earth. They go back to the late Paleolithic, the fertility of the soil, the magic of animals, the power vision in solitude, the terrifying initiation and rebirth, the love and ecstasy of the dance, the common work of the tribe. I try to hold both history and wilderness in mind that my poems may approach the true measure of things and stand against the unbalance and ignorance of our time. Hmm. 
That's lovely. You are listening to Dream Talk Radio. I'm Ann Hill. I'm your host today and every Thursday. On the phone with me is Stephen Herman, a Jungian psychotherapist in Oakland and also a poet and author most recently of The Shaman's Call, along with William Everson. I should say this is a, a really interesting collection of interviews with the poet William Everson and commentary about the idea, and we've been tar- talking about Archetype West, which it was an idea of Everson's that he synthesized from a lot of people, but also this idea of the shaman poet and the shaman's call. I find it really interesting that uh, there's there's all these overlappings with my own story. You know, I, I used to live up in the Oakland Hills. I grew up there, and I would drive almost every day to school uh, past Joaquin Miller's little uh house on on Joaquin Miller Road <laughs> I remember many times going in there and peeking in and oh this is interesting a one room thing how, and just imagining how a poet would walk up into the hills or or ride a horse up into the hills and just stay and and write poetry it was lovely and and then you were saying he uh Everson wrote Archetype West in Stinson Beach right before starting this class The Birth of a Poet at UC Santa Cruz, and and he ended, he stopped teaching in 1981, and I started at UC Santa Cruz in 1982, so all these little, (laughs) just on the cusp of not quite, (laughs) but let's talk about the birth of a poet, so this is an interesting segue then, He, he writes about the archetype West, so he's very hooked into this whole idea of the spirits, the animal spirits, I mean, he's almost kind of gone completely opposite from the Christian idea of purity and and uh, sort of this this lofty spirituality into sort of this animal you know wearing skins and getting into the 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 earth so he's sort of kind of from the heights so to speak of transcend transcendent religion he's kind of gone way into earth religion and mm-hmm. he talks about then he starts this class, The Birth of a Poet, which is very keyed into dreams. From what I've read, he talks, he asks uh, his students to write down their dreams and try and find their vocation. So how? So this sounds like he is taking on not just the clothing, not just the aesthetics, but actually wearing the mantle of the shaman who is, is, is trying to help people come into their vocation. Can you speak mm-hmm. to that somewhat? Yeah. Yeah, this is exactly the uh, point that I'm, I'm, I'm making, and <clears throat> that this poem that he wrote, Black Hills, uh, really is a dream about his uh, being in the Black Hills area, mm-hmm. which was the sacred ground of the vision quest for the Plains Indian. And uh, so Everson goes there, and he tries to resolve his uh, <clears throat> relationship uh, to uh, the land and his being a uh, uh, post-Christian uh, poet in the Far West. And basically what he comes up with in Archetype West is this idea that for the great poet of the West uh, to emerge, uh, there needed to be a displacement uh, of a personal God in modern consciousness. Yeah. And uh, in order for that to happen, there had to be this uh, uh, this acceptance of the violence inherent in the phenomenal world uh, that could uh, shatter the uh, hypnotic materialistic complacency, he says, upon which the Victorian social assumptions were based. And this is what defines the Western writer, in Everson's view, the Mm -hmm. Western poet, uh, the greatest uh, poet shaman uh, of California, in Everson's view, was Robinson Jeffers, Mm -hmm. who really uh, took the ideas of John Muir to the point of uh, an ultimate uh, transcendence in Everson's idea. Uh, basically, his, his thought in uh, Archetype West is that, uh, you know, while Whitman uh, went as far as the Rockies, he turned back, huh. and um, it had uh, yet to be brought into comprehension uh, the, that there was this awesome scale of the Western landscape that had uh, yet to be painted by an American uh, poet, a yeah. writer. And um, through Muir, it was clear that nature is divine, that the American soul was saying nature is divine. Uh, this movement from a personal uh, God to, a, to the God in nature 
this is very American in, in Everson's mm-hmm. view, and uh, it has a lot to do with the teaching of birth of a poet, because mm-hmm. um, the dream content of many of the students had to do with uh, uh, animal uh, motifs and motifs in nature. Um, one, one of the beautiful things he says in Archetype West is uh, about John Muir. Mm-hmm. Um, he says basically that uh, the full potentiality of the Western archetype was not realized until Muir hit the Sierras. And the encounter was so dis- dev- uh, decisive that it's not too much to say that a man was invaded by a mountain range and transformed thereby became its voice. Hmm. The Sierra became his cathedral, and the long days and months and years he spent in its nave and transept, he's using religious terms there, were to foster his soul. It is one of the great marriages of a man in a region, and it was indeed consummated in a literary work, for the mountains of California is a classic of its kind. He he then goes on to say, though, however, that, you know, until Muir spoke and and fought, this fierce battle with uh, Congress about the damming of the mm-hmm. uh, Hetch Hetchy, right. uh, where he said, basically, you know, as, as well dam for uh, water tanks, the people's cathedrals and churches, for no holier temple ever existed in the heart of man. Mm-hmm. So this idea of the divinity in nature, uh, which is something you find throughout all of Robinson Jeffers' work right. and also in Everson's work, where he really brings together the idea of the Christ in nature. Mm-hmm. Um, he says that uh, Jeffers really represents the apotheosis point in Western writing. And um, it was through Jeffers that the Godhead could really blaze through. Mm-hmm. And um, one interesting passage in Archetype West is that uh, Whitman is the sunrise in the east, but Jeffers is the sunset in the west. It's mm-hmm. bloody and violent, but it's the last light given us. We deny it at our peril. So the the way in which Everson came to the idea of the vocational archetype was through experiencing uh, the power of uh, the California writer on his own uh, soul experience and the impact of that on his dreams. Mm -hmm. Um, When he picked up Robinson Jeffers uh, at Fresno State uh, off the shelf, he said that... uh, you know, he was uh, basically experiencing a kind of a, uh, uh, an internal uh, violation of his soul, that something within him cracked, and, mm. and he went home and he wrote a poem, and he calls it October Tragedy. Beautiful poem, and it's interesting, it's about a, uh, a buck, uh, it's about uh, uh, following the spoor of a wounded buck mm. uh, over the marsh and deep into the desolate hills. So it's kind of like he goes on a vision quest at that yeah. point. Right at the beginning of his uh, vocation as a poet, he leaves Fresno State to become a, a, a tender of grapes in the land, and uh, and then he starts writing. Hmm. So just as uh, Carl Jung, uh, you know, looked to the German poets uh, right. Schiller, Goethe. Uh, Goethe, and Nietzsche uh, for the nuclear ideas that gave empirical verification for his hypothesis of the collective unconscious. And so was Everson uh, looking to the American poets, to, uh, you know, the uh, Eastern uh, writers, Melville, Whitman, and Dickinson, Uh, although he didn't read Dickinson too much or speak about her. uh, There's a certain male-centered stuff that I've seen. And so he really learned about the vocational archetype by studying it in uh, American poetry. And then I picked up that... uh, that line of interest and have extended it myself in, uh, in the book, uh, the shaman's call, as well as in a new publication on, uh, Walt Whitman, yeah. uh, that I just, uh, had published, uh, last month. Oh, congratulations. Uh, yeah. This is a uh, Walt Whitman, uh, uh, spiritual democracy, shamanism, spiritual democracy and the world soul. Mm. Now, Getting back to your question about dreams um, and the role of Everson in uh, being an evocator or an evoker of these powerful vocational dreams that students would have, 
by the time I was his TA in uh, 1981, uh, the course was limited to 100 students. Mm. At one time, there were like 300 students in a class. Wow. I mean, these were a very large class. Uh, and was this through Kresge College? Or Kresge which, College yeah, in yeah. the literature department. Yeah. That's right, Anne. <laughs> and um, you'd see students coming in uh, uh somewhat sleepy-eyed, and mm -hmm. they'd be uh, around uh, Everson, who was in the center of a large uh, auditorium, and he was always standing and mm -hmm. uh, walking around, uh, pacing sometimes, and the students would sit in a large circle around him. So oftentimes the students were, you know, in a half-dream uh, state. Sometimes yeah. they'd fall asleep, but, you know, mainly they would be in a relaxed state, so they, the unconscious would have uh, an opportunity to be stimulated by mm -hmm. what he was saying. And uh, sometimes with the reading of his poems, uh, you would feel this electrical current that was quite extraordinary. Mm -hmm. um, I speak of Everson as a, a lightning shaman mm -hmm. in a couple of places throughout my book because of <clears throat> what's been said about him. Um, <clears throat> He had this ability to uh, stimulate <clears throat> or activate uh, the vocational archetype mm -hmm. in students' dreams in a way that was quite electrifying. Um, you could say that he had this uh, ability to lead uh, the uh, active listener, uh, the student, into a state of uh, uh, trance. Mm -hmm. um, uh, or what Jung would call active imagination, right. uh, active visioning. And um, that's evidenced by a couple of dreams that I report uh, of my own while I was interviewing Everson yeah. uh, in the book, uh, where I give some examples of a couple of dreams, um, one of which um, uh, I think I'll, I'll just share here sure. since it... Uh, relates directly to what you were saying, Anne, about driving by Joaquin Miller's house and the, uh, <laughs> the interesting synchronicity, as Jung yes. uh, coined the term, of events like that in our lives and, and the way in which archetypal realities can be experienced uh, in our lives in very uh, mysterious ways. So in this dream, I was uh, walking on a ridge uh, in the Oakland Hills uh, with Everson, and we were near the California poet Joaquin Miller's home, mm -hmm. which uh, Miller had named the Heights. And we were just below the park, and I had uh, a poem, which I handed to Bill, that I had written. And he looked the poem over and wanted to change a few lines here and there, where I had strayed into some kind of abstraction. Mm -hmm. He wanted me to use more metaphors and verbs and nouns to uh, describe the setting. And... Uh, <clears throat> Uh, to bring the poem more into life. So I was watching his skill and technique as a master craftsman, and we had this broad view of Oakland, of the city uh, life below, and of the poem uh, reflecting the activities going on there. You know, I was writing about mm -hmm. uh, the city. So he wrote in the margins in the dream about the hundreds of homes nestled in the big city, and I knew he was referring to the homes of, uh, you know, the people, um, uh, in the uh, <clears throat> Oakland area, mm -hmm. and I thought of Jung's statement uh, at the time in the dream that at the very bottom of the psyche, uh, the psyche is simply the world. And uh, uh, I thought about also about the countless occupations uh, in in operation, and of the uh, the work people fulfilling their uh, labor or their tasks below. And I thought of Walt Whitman and his role in the book as a synthesizer. Now, <clears throat> the synchronicity of this uh, dream for me, Anne, is that uh, uh, this, this happened while I was uh, interviewing Bill. Yeah. Uh, we were having our conversations. He had called me down to Kingfisher Flat in Davenport, mm -hmm. where he lived, on uh, Big Creek, um, just in the Santa Cruz Mountains right. there uh, off the Pacific coast. And um, <clears throat> I had this dream... Uh, right before the interviews took place. And um, the, one of the interesting things that emerges in the conversations is this dialogue about uh, Whitman in the East and Jeffers in the Far West and how they form a kind of a pair of uh, opposites who balance each other. 
So Everson, who really followed uh, Robinson Jeffers as his great, you know, master teacher, and um, had uh, published the preface, a uh, beautiful printing of the preface to uh, Leaves of Grass mm -hmm. uh, in a book called American Bard while I was his teaching assistant, also had interest in uh, Whitman. But he, he clearly uh, was uh, more of a um, student of Robinson Jeffers than of Whitman, and I was really being uh, pulled and interested in Walt Whitman at the time. So part of the dialogue that takes place is really about uh, what makes the West Coast different from the East Coast, mm -hmm. and uh, it leads to some interesting uh, ideas. Yes. One of which is this idea of uh, uh, the vocational archetype right. uh, and its relationship to the psychoid, which has to do with the synchronicity principle mm -hmm. that Jung wrote about in uh, uh, in his paper, uh, The Nature of the Psyche, mm -hmm. and then later his synchronicity paper where he really speaks about these a-causal connections that we have in our lives, uh, where there are uh, uh, correspondences between the inner world of the dream, uh, imaginal reality, and uh, the outer concrete uh, events in our lives yeah. that, that are patterned by archetypes, one of which, and probably the most powerful of which in our lives, is the vocational archetype. Mm -hmm. And about that, Everson said in uh, The Course Birth of a Poet that every vocation is controlled by a symbol. And that symbol comes not from the individual, but from the collective, uh, from the psyche, mm -hmm. from the collective psyche. Now, he also uh, <clears throat> would uh, add to that, and Jung uh, would agree. In fact, Jung wrote a beautiful paper called Mind and Earth, where he speaks about uh, the, the impact of uh, the earth on on the human psyche. Everson speaks in terms of a regionalism, and that's why the uh, Pacific Coast as a literary region was so uh, important right. in uh, uh, helping to shape his ideas in Birth of a Poet, because he's really speaking about the impact of region on the psyche. Right. How did the uh, region uh, influence the poetry of Robinson Jeffers? How does it influence the poetry of a William Everson? How does it in influence the writing of uh, some of the listeners, right. uh, perhaps, uh, who are uh, also looking to dreams for vocational guidance? And um, speaking of which, I should interrupt you for a moment just to say that uh, you are listening to Dream Talk Radio. This is uh, Stephen Herman we're speaking with this morning. Stephen is a Jungian psychotherapist in Oakland. Uh, he teaches internationally, and he is... Well, he's just published a new book, but the book that we are talking about today is William Everson, The Shaman's Call. And uh, William Everson is, of course, the uh, very important Western poet. Um, and also he, he taught this class, The Birth of a Poet, which we have been talking about. One of the things, Stephen, that I found really interesting in your interviews uh, with Everson <clears throat> is when you ask him about the class, The Birth of a Poet, that he taught at UC Santa Cruz. You ask him how many people out of 100 students heard that. So, so the picture you're painting is everybody's sort of a little bleary-eyed, or many people are bleary-eyed, sort of wandering into this auditorium, and Everson is this lightning shaman. He is able, he's, it's sort of all about transmission through poetry or whatever means to get to ignite some spark and to... Uh, to sort of tap the bell in the right tone so that the students in the audience feel the call of their own vocation, their own vocational archetype. And at one point you, uh, in the interviews, you ask him how many out of 100 actually did get that, feel that, that summons of their own unique vocation. And his answer is, Oh, maybe two or three out of a hundred. <laughs> but then, but then he goes on to say that well, possibly uh, thirty to forty percent, maybe even fifty percent, knew what to listen for. And I thought mm. that was so interesting that they may yeah. not, you may not feel it then, but you know you have the feeling tone. You've gotten the transmission of what that feels like when your soul calls to you. I thought that was a lovely uh, and, and honest, you know, kind of scathingly honest. Uh, mm -hmm. assessment of his own, uh, of meeting his own goals for that class. Well, that's really beautifully put, and I think that is exactly the spirit and the tenor of, of, of Everson, that he had that kind of 
modesty, and he did hold an empirical attitude uh, mm-hmm. towards the um, the dream journals that uh, we would read together in his office uh, of the students, and uh, the final essays, which were sometimes quite eloquent, mm-hmm. and um, uh, it, he really did look uh, as a post-Jungian uh, at the. Um, uh, at the dreams from that angle. The, yeah. the vocational dreams uh, hold a potentiality. Uh, so uh, many students may have had these vocational dreams, yet how to bring it uh, forth yeah. is, is the big question. And yes. that's what I was really pressing Bill about, is mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, how, how does one manifest uh, the the vocational archetype yeah. in one's life uh, well, and, I, and, and bring it in, bring it to birth. You know, the, the birth of a poet was yeah. the uh, name of the course and um, that was the aim. Uh, yet he was very modest about uh, what he was observing that um, it takes a long uh, period of time yeah. and uh, actually a, a psychological uh, uh, work <clears throat> Everson did a lot of this work himself. He he basically was self-analyzed um, and uh, learned Jungian psychology, or was uh, actually uh, introduced to it by Father Victor White of the Dominican Order, mm. uh, who uh, Jung corresponded with uh, quite extensively, and uh, he really was uh, quite a Jungian in his his mm. own regard uh, as a thinker. He's very intuitive and really, I think, made a, an important contribution to uh, Jungian psychology in, in the West hmm. and um, did this from the literary field. He basically uh, was a, a post-Dominican you know, and a post-Jungian right. who was uh, focusing primarily on <clears throat> this notion he developed of the vocational archetype. So I have a, a question for you, just to, to, not to interrupt the train of your thought too much, but I don't want to let this moment pass by, which is before I before we took a break, you were talking about how every uh, he, he viewed every vocational archetype as having a symbol. Mm-hmm. And then, so part of this class, I'm really trying to flesh out this scene for our listeners, part of this class was the students would keep a dream journal and these would mm-hmm. be turned in. And so you as Everson's teaching assistant and Everson would, would read all of these dreams. What did he look for in terms of vocational archetypal symbols in his students' dreams? Mm-hmm. And how did he approach that material with them? Did he comment or do uh, some degree of analysis or interpretation of the dreams? Well, that's a good question, Anne. Uh, we held office hours, and students would sometimes come in uh, on their own initiative uh, and speak about their dreams. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, he really was a, uh, a vocational counselor, you mm-hmm. could say, a mm-hmm. spiritual counselor. Mm-hmm. Um, let me give an example for Great. the uh, listeners of a vocational dream from a student's uh, essay. This is a final essay for the course, and it's from a woman's uh, uh, journal. And uh, she reports in the dream how she journeyed back to the region of her childhood. And this movement back to childhood, uh, this is a very um, important uh, motif. It's, it's a, uh, a very common uh, recurrence in, in vocational dreams that there's this journey back to childhood. Because oftentimes the first... Uh, glimmerings we have of of a calling, of a vocation, is uh, in childhood. So she's journeying back to the region of her childhood, and she was going to procure an axe, which she felt was somehow different than an ordinary axe. Hmm. Um, So once she recovers it, uh, she proceeds past her elementary school, Hmm. across the hills to where a bus is to pick her up and take her to school. And just then her boyfriend appears and she loses it um, mm. as she's getting onto the bus. So that night they uh, they sit at home and uh, they go downstairs into some kind of an underground castle. The walls are stone and they sleep in a large room covered by uh, uh, furs in a bed. And uh, the next day she rides on her bicycle, the one she had as a child, to an old Greek ruin. Mm. 
And she digs down in the dirt between the pillars, knowing just where to look, and she finds the magical axe. But it had somehow been changed, transformed into a broken sword. She drew it forth from the earth and held it up shining in the clear morning. In waking, she wrote in her uh, final essay, I knew exactly what the dream meant. I know I will write poetry again. She felt that the axe was a symbol of her vocation, and she had lost this out of her excessive love, the love of a lifetime. She was in mourning at the time about the loss of the relationship. In closing the essay, she said very eloquently, I will search the rubble of the past if need be, but I will find again what I have lost. I will draw it forth from the dark female earth, broken perhaps, surely changed, but still shining, shining. Um, so dreams like that, uh, mm-hmm. and really testify to the student accounts of vocational clarification yeah. uh, through dream. And they really testify to what Everson called the evocative force of the unconscious, the power of the archetypes to d- redirect the course of life. Yeah. They also testify, he says, to the movement of the meditations and the presence uh, which pervades them. Hmm. So that gives you an example yeah. of uh, one of these vocational dreams that really had an impact on one of the students. And I think it may be inter- uh, important to clarify the difference now between vocation and career. Uh, vocation being that which we are called to do, not necessarily, or is it m- more uh, tied in with what we end up doing to support ourselves throughout our lives? I mean, that's kind of a, because it's, I mean, it's such a wonderful age to work with people on that material, right? College age, late teens, early 20s, mm-hmm. young adulthood. And yeah. so just how did he he perceive a distinction between vocation and career, or did he really speak in those terms? Well, that's another very good question. Um, Everson distinguished between uh, vocation and career uh, in the following way. Um, He's really said the vocation is where your motivation is. It's Mm -hmm. not where your talents lie. It's where your deepest source of motivation is. Uh, And it comes from the deepest part of the self with a capital S, Mm -hmm. uh, the big S self, namely that part of us that really allows us to expand. Um, as, as Walt Whitman said, I am large, I contain multitudes. Mm-hmm. I mean, this idea of where is the expansion point in the personality, the point of transcendence, uh, that's really what he was looking for when he speaks of the vocational archetype and its impact on the psyche. He's really speaking about that uh, potential. And he gives two examples uh, in Jung's autobiography, uh, Memories, Dreams, Reflections, where... Mm-hmm. Jung records two dreams uh, that played a very uh, important role in his uh, defining his own vocation. And uh, uh, those were two dreams that, um, you know, I could speak about uh, sure. at some point later, perhaps. But the, the, the important distinction between the vocation and the career is the career is the impact of the vocation on the world. Uh. It has to do with one's uh, relationship to the collectivity and the relationship between uh, the individual and uh, collectivity, uh, the, the, the group uh, or the, the culture, uh, the nation in which one lives. Mm-hmm. It's the impact of our work on, on the outside. Uh, now, what you're referring to is uh, what I've uh, defined as an occupation. Um, mm-hmm. An occupation is right. really what we do for a living. Right. It may not coincide with our vocation, but it may be how we make money. Uh, mm-hmm. And good literary examples are um, uh, Franz Kafka, who yeah. was uh, worked in a bank, for example, uh, or... Um, uh, so there's other examples oh, that could sure. be given where yeah. you know we have to make a living and and it may not coincide with uh, our vocation. Well, Einstein uh, being a but clerk, it nevertheless yeah. is very important in yeah. sustaining us. Yeah. And uh, I take this up in my uh, a new book on Walt Whitman because he wrote uh, a song for occupations, which uh, Everson speaks about in in the Shaman's Call uh, and. Uh, we define uh, these terms more in the in the conversation that takes place. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so that's a good question, Anne. And um, uh, certainly for that woman uh, student uh, whose dream I just uh, uh, repeated, she had been uh, in the wrong major at the uh, uh-huh. uh, college uh, uh, entry level at, yeah. at the university there. She she had strayed into uh, a field that was not in accordance with her deepest sense of motivation. And some something about the relationship she was in, as well as uh, some childhood factors that m- may be uh, apparent from the, the dream content, yeah. were interfering with that. And so by regressing, allowing her psychic energy to regress back to childhood, Mm-hmm. She was able to move beyond the personal uh, unconscious, what Jung called the personal unconscious, and connect with an archetypal mm-hmm. symbol. And that's the symbol of the sword. Right. And it, she finds it in, in the, uh, the earth, and it's uh, near some ruins in ancient Greece. So that points for a woman to the uh, vocation, perhaps, of Sappho, the great mm-hmm. uh, female poet of uh, Greece. And to her discovery of that logos principle, that onimus principle, as Jung called it, that could really help her cut through the complexes of her personal path mm-hmm. and break through to a new experience of her uh, creative destiny. Um, and I think that's what the Course allowed her to do, as you could see in the essay. She's yeah. quite eloquent in, in yes. her uh, writing. Um, yes. So... That's an example of of what we were doing um, in Birth of a Poet. That's that's Um, lovely. Oh, let me just uh, interject here. You are listening to Dream Talk Radio. This is Anne Hill. I'm your host every Thursday. And I'm talking this morning with Stephen Herman, who is calling in from Oakland, talking about his most, well, actually now it's not quite the most recent book, but it is uh, the book on William Everson, The Shaman's Call. These are interviews with the poet and commentaries about uh, the vocational archetype and really fascinating post-Jungian poetics and and shamanics, I guess we could call it. Uh, You can find the book William Everson, The Shaman's Call on Amazon, I should also say. And um, so we've been been kind of going on a a sort of a, um, a narrative journey through Everson's life, the whole idea of archetype West and the idea of the Western poet. and that we've talked about the vocational archetype and how he was able to draw out that sort of response from his students at UC Santa Cruz in this Birth of the Poet class. I think in a lovely way, I mean, I, to me, when you have a dream such as that woman, young woman's dream where you, you, you find the place you know exactly where to dig between the two pillars yeah. and as this ancient, I mean, okay, that's pretty much, that's striking a lot of chords with uh, this is, this is, uh, this is authentic, this, this is archaic slash authentic. And so whatever I dig out of here is is going to be something that has a lot of resonance for me. So I can see how that type of having that type of dream during that type of experience it sounds like a real transformative um class, transformative experience uh maybe crunched somehow into a into an actual college class uh would would really help to stimulate that vocational urge and I also love what you said about vocation clarifying or somehow being uh, being the inner call which the occupation then is a translation of that into the collective somehow mm-hmm. lovely lovely mm-hmm. way to connect those two yes and you're bringing in the word transformation I think is, yeah. is right on uh, the mark and because uh, that's what these dreams do uh, for us, they they help to transform consciousness by electrifying us in certain ways. Yeah. You know, Walt Whitman uh, wrote uh, "I Sing the Body Electric" yes. uh, in 1855. Uh, Emily Dickinson was uh, writing also about uh, uh, being struck by lightning. Yeah. So this metaphor is not just something that uh, was concocted, but is rec- actually uh, there in the literary documents of the East Coast writers, as well as in the works of Robinson Jeffers and William Everson. Mm-hmm. Um, this, this idea uh, is, is very basic to 
psychic energy itself, uh, which now uh, with uh, modern physics, you know, we we see that uh, uh, electromagnetic energy is is in the uh, the atoms. You know, mm-hmm. when when Walt Whitman says. Um, you know what I assume you shall assume, and yeah. for every atom belonging to me is good belongs to you. He's really saying, you know, that this energy, the psychic energy, is available for use if one can tap, find a way to tap into it. And Everson's great genius is that he had that intuitive uh, insight into the w- the way in uh, for uh, students at the uh, uh, early adult career yeah. uh, transition uh, yeah. phase. Uh, Jung, of course, is is the great exponent of of these ideas, and Everson uh, helped to develop, along with Ira Progoff, who Mm -hmm. played a very significant role as an American uh, writer in going to interview Jung and extending Jung's ideas about uh, the uh, concept of the psychoid, which we take up in in the book, and Jung's ideas about synchronicity. Uh, Progoff was quite uh, uh, articulate in uh, uh, making a, uh, a contribution and extending Jung's ideas to the field of depth psychology. Yeah. And, uh, and then Eberson, uh, who read Progoff uh, after uh, uh, he met Victor White, uh, began to develop his own uh, uh, ideas about this. Mm-hmm. And uh, in my teaching of courses at uh, John F. Kennedy University, which was then uh, when I taught there uh, in Orinda, California, mm-hmm. uh, the students wanted to know more about uh, vocational uh, dreams and about the, the concept of the vocational archetype. So it was really from a calling from the students that I was led down to interview uh, Everson and mm-hmm. ask him in the first interview uh, what he thought about uh, uh, these ideas, uh, what his uh, contribution was. Yeah. And then it was dreams that helped me uh, listen, learn how to listen really to the call within my own psyche mm-hmm. that um, opened up the possibility of, of uh, these interviews yes. uh, with Everson. And he literally did call me uh, uh, on the phone uh, to come down to uh, his home in Davenport uh, <laughs> and uh, to interview him. So that's why uh, the title of the book is The Shaman's Call. Right. Uh, uh, there's two dimensions uh, right. going on there at right. the same time. You were the, called literally on the phone. <laughs> right, right. You have and, this um, one. Go ahead. This was right before he, his... Uh, his death. He had mm-hmm. Parkinson's disease, yeah. and so he could no longer write. And one of the reasons for his calling me down was because he was uh, still uh, <clears throat> filled with uh, creative ideas and yeah. wanting to get down a second edition of Birth of a Poet uh-huh. um, and um, saw the interview format as, as a way to uh, continue what he was doing down at Santa oh, Cruz. that's wonderful. And... Um, you have this uh, uh, lovely quote I, I pulled from your book about the role of the poet shaman, if I may. Uh, the role of okay. the poet shaman is to act as a mediator between what is remembered and what is forgotten, what is seen and what is unseen, to open us up to the hidden and unexplored mystery inside each of us. Lovely writing, by the way. And I, it strikes me that we can we can see this this archetype in we you know we can have the transference like William Everson as my professor is the shaman poet and we can encounter that archetype through people but we can also encounter the poet shaman in dreams and I'm wondering if you have any experiences or of of yourself or or other uh, clients and whatnot students that have that have. Uh, had an encounter with the poet shaman in a dream. It seems like a very rich metaphor. I mean, in my dreams, if I when I imagine uh, coming upon the poet shaman, it would be somebody who I'm not quite sure if he's crazy or sane, he or she, crazy or sane, but they say something and it's just filled with wisdom. And it's that those words that, that remain with me after I wake up and I think, wow, that is just out, completely out of left field, but there was some quality of resonance to it that that makes me feel like this is the truth with a capital T. I need to remember this. Well, that's an interesting, yeah, question, and I think that 
it's important to uh, not project uh, from our own psyches uh, too much the yeah. the archetype onto anyone in the outer world. And <clears throat> Whitman uh, was a great uh, teacher of this, uh, where he said, uh, uh, you know, I am the teacher of athletes. Uh, he that by me spreads a greater breadth than my own proves the the breadth of my own. Mm-hmm. Uh, I he basically said that he he taught uh, he teaches us how to destroy the teacher. Mm-hmm. Well, this is a very uh, Jungian idea. You know, Jung talked about the dangers of inflation that come from identifying with an archetype. Yeah. And um, Primarily this archetype of the shaman or the medicine man. He's got a beautiful passage late in life, which he wrote. Uh, actually, he was talking to students at the C.G. Young Institute in Zurich, and he warned against the dangers of uh, uh, identifying with the medicine man or the shaman mm-hmm. as an archetype. Um, the important thing is to realize one's relationship to it within and not to get too swept up by the energies yeah. invested in it. And it was, I think, Everson's humility as a uh, uh, post-Christian monk, you know, and now a poet uh, of the West, to wear the mantle with an attitude of reverence Mm -hmm. and uh, not to try and assume something from the land and from the Native American uh, culture that didn't really belong uh, to uh, the Western uh, psyche. Uh, and experience uh, to, to wear it, but to wear it with uh, modesty and uh, humility. Hmm. Of course, you know, as a practicing psychotherapist, I, uh, I, I'm, a, I'm a therapist. I don't identify with being a shaman or anything right. like that. And it's important to make that uh, distinction. That, you know, that uh, I learned this from my uh, uh, from my teacher Donald Sandner, mm-hmm. who played a part in these interviews and encouraging me to go down and uh, interview Everson, uh, that you know Jungian psychotherapists are not shamans and uh, need to be careful not to identify yeah. with that. Yeah. But nevertheless, one can, uh, through one's relationship to the archetype, uh, be influenced by it. I give an example to uh, answer your question mm-hmm. about my own dreams. Uh, on page 81 of the book, about a dream that came to me the morning of uh, my interview with Bill Everson um, in Chapter 4, Vocation and the Vision Quest. Interestingly, that morning before I went down to interview him, uh, I had a dream of an old Crow Indian medicine man in a teepee who was initiating me with some older men. And uh, I had been struck in the throat uh, by lightning. And... um, Mm. He was fanning the uh, the neck with a, uh, an eagle feather uh, to. So this this idea here that mm-hmm. uh, you know it's not Everson who appears yeah. in the dream. It's an old uh, right. Indian um, a medicine man, a, a shaman from the plains area, and um, I think this is the the idea. Uh, that Jung has that uh, one needs to form a relationship to the to the inner uh, uh, to the inner archetype, but um, not assume it uh, in one's uh, uh, identity. Now Everson could do that; he could wear the mantle of the uh, poet shaman yeah. because of who he was. Uh, and um, nevertheless, uh, psychotherapists don't uh, identify with this right. role. Right. But it's, it does seem that that it's that he was doing that. But as you say, his his modesty and humility was such that he was able to take off the mantle. I think, I mean, he was. Uh, it sounds like he was deliberately taking on that form for to allow the students to have their own experience yeah. of vocational archetype and and awakening in that way. But then it mm-hmm. also sounds like he, like that was a that was a tactic. That wasn't his identity which is very important yes, to see in a teacher. That's a good way to put it, Anne. It was a persona that yeah, he wore, yeah. um, a costume uh, that he wore with a kind of religious attitude yeah. uh, towards his destiny. Uh, and uh, again, he he did it because he felt that that was the embodiment of the Western archetype, mm-hmm. that the, the, the Western poet is closer to the indigenous mm-hmm. contribution than the East Coast poet. So while Whitman could be a great poet shaman, 
he he maintained his his persona as a uh, colonial, you could say, right. uh, poet. Uh, yet he was also autochthonous, as yeah. uh, Everson points out. Uh, but Joaquin Miller, who actually uh, married into the Pitt River Indian tribe, he actually married. Uh, uh, the daughter of the chief, and oh, wow. his daughter lived he- right here in Oakland. Yes. Uh, when he moved to Oakland, he was closer, as Everson would say, to the um, uh, to the Native American uh, experience, and that's what makes the California writer unique in Everson's uh, uh-huh. mind. Um, Oh, fascinating. I wish we had another hour to go into this in more depth. <laughs> it's been such a pleasure. We've been uh, talking with Stephen Herman here on Dream Talk Radio this morning. Stephen is the author of William Everson, The Shaman's Call, which I encourage you all to check out, uh, particularly if you have an interest in the borderlands between psychology and spirituality and and uh, literature. Uh, it's a beautifully literate book about poetry and the poet shaman. And uh, Stephen, thank you so much for being here on Dream Talk Radio. I, I wish you all the best with your book on Whitman, and perhaps we can talk about, uh, in, in the future, talk more about the archetypes of the West and the writers. Well, Anne, thank you very much. It's been my pleasure, a delight. Great. Okay. Well, I have, a, have a wonderful day. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Oh, that was Stephen Herman, a good friend and a really lovely writer, poet, uh, Jungian psychotherapist in Oakland out in the Montclair region. You may have heard us talking about our sort of a mutual homeland. That was my hometown, and that's where, where Stephen lives. And um, the land and poetics and spirit and psyche, fascinating stuff.